You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host. And with me today is Karen Abuzaid, Commissioner General of UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. And we're talking to the Commissioner General in Gaza City. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Today we're going to be discussing the medical and humanitarian issues of 4.4 million Palestinian refugees. Commissioner, could you tell us a little bit about UNRWA, how it began, what its mission is, and its vision? It was created in 1949, started work in 1950 for the 800,000 or so Palestinians who had fled Mandate Palestine during the, the conflict in that year of 48. It was given the, well, the title Relief and Works, and it began as a sort of relief agency mainly, and then evolved over time to be the agency that provides basic services for the Palestine refugees, who are now, as you say, number 4.4 million. And those services are primary health care, primary education, uh, relief and social services for a very small percentage of the people, and microfinance and microenterprise program. There are now four generations of Palestinians who have received aid from this agency. Has the purpose of the agency changed through these years? Well, yes, as I say, when we first started, of course, it was putting up some tents and providing some food and so on, but then we began to to provide the the basic services. We do this in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and West Bank and Gaza, so we're confined to this particular region and for these particular group of refugees, which is quite unusual for uh, a UN agency. And we do this with 28,000 refugee staff, who are all the teachers and the social workers and the nurses and doctors and so on. And then only uh, 113 international staff who live in the region. So your staff is mainly people who are living in the area full-time. That's right. Mm-hmm. All, all of us. In fact, the, all the international staff live here as well, because our headquarters is also here in Gaza City. Again, quite unusual for a U.N. agency. Do you think this adds credibility to the agency? It certainly does, and it certainly puts us in touch with the Palestinians and the refugees and what their needs are and what their desires are and so on. We used to be in Vienna. Uh, we were in Lebanon, and we were in Vienna. And then when, after the Oslo Accords and the formation of the Palestinian Authority, the Secretary General at the time thought that the headquarters should be where the Palestinian Authority was, and that's when we moved here in the mid-'90s. I know there's a high commissioner for refugees in the United Nations. Why is this agency set aside? Well, because it was formed first. UNRWA was created uh, a year before the uh, UNHCR, and when UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, was cre- the office of the High Commissioner was created, it was created with the mandate to cover all those refugees who were not covered by existing UN agencies, and that was UNRWA with the Palestinians, and uh, we've maintained it in that way. And it is a particular, it's the longest standing refugee population, and it has, you know, particular political implications, as is obvious, and so it's uh, it's just been kept that way. You mentioned political. The agency is humanitarian and is not political. How are you able to keep these two things separate? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not always easy because, of course, we live in a highly political environment and dealing with a very much politicized issue, but we're as careful as we can be to make sure that what we do is humanitarian. The other evolution that's taken place over time is to call ourselves an to see ourselves as a human development agency, and that is because we concentrate on education, which is the thing that refugees want, want most, and 
almost all of our refugees are, are self-sufficient. Only a third of them live in 58 refugee camps. The other two-thirds live in towns and villages in the, these countries where we work. And only 6% of them, when we don't have an emergency like we have right now in West Bank and Gaza, only 6% actually uh, need relief for social services. You mentioned you have an emergency right now. How has that changed, the life of the refugee? Well, it's made them pretty miserable because this is an emergency, at least in West Bank and Gaza, that's gone on now for seven years. We had the five years of the Intifada, more or less, and then uh, shortly after the Intifada, more or less, died down, the election of the Hamas government meant that there were new sanctions against this area. And then in this past year, since June at least, it's become even worse in that uh, because the Hamas government has taken over here in Gaza and there have been even stricter sanctions against uh, the people uh, of Gaza. So it's been quite a problem with our having you know, an extra $200 million program in addition to our basic services in emergency funds that we've had to have because from the beginning of the Intifada, 120,000 people no longer had jobs in Israel and they were daily paid workers mainly. So they've had to have food handouts since then. They would bring money from Israel to spend in Gaza, and that money is no longer available. That's right. Or they would come with their food supplies from Israel each day, and that's why almost immediately the cupboards were bare early in uh, the Intifada in October of 2000. So we've been handing out a very basic food ration ever since then, and now about 80% of the population in Gaza are receiving that. That's the refugees, and then the World Food Program gives the same rations to the non-refugees. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Commissioner Karen Abuzaid, who is in charge of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, and we're discussing medical and humanitarian issues for these refugees. Initially, I believe one of the functions was a dynamic function to your agency, preparing the refugees for the future. Is that purpose now on hold? Not at all. I mean, that's what, that's why we still educate them and prepare them for one day being able to, uh, well, in fact, they're already doing it now that they have a, a Palestinian authority. It's not a Palestinian state yet, but one day they will, of course, run the state. The majority of people in Gaza are refugees, and when there's a Palestinian state, then there will be people probably coming from some of the other places where they're now refugees in Jordan and Syria and Lebanon to the Palestinian state. You mentioned that initially there were 800,000 refugees that were displaced in 19. 1948, and now we're talking about 4.4 million as of 2005. I wonder, are you doing studies on what those numbers are going to become five or ten years down? I mean, the numbers seem astronomical now as far as the displaced population. Where are they going? Well, that's a real question, and that's something that we're having to deal with, and that's uh, you know, and discuss with our donors because you know we are entirely voluntarily funded. Every year we have to raise the money for our budget, which is about $400 million for the, the education and health and another $200 million, as I mentioned, for emergency services. And because the population grows every year, we do have to have more money and bigger programs and more teachers and more classrooms every year. So I guess we're always hoping that one day soon there will be a Palestinian state and the problem will be solved. There will be a just and fair solution for Palestinians, and, and then they will be able to raise their own taxes and pay for their own services. Who are your donors? Well, the major donor, the biggest donor, is the United States government. The second biggest donor, and they sort of compete to be number one, is the European Commission, the European Community. And then other the Scandinavian countries, Britain, Japan, Australia, Spain, Germany, and so on. The usual 
10 top donors who fund humanitarian activities and organizations throughout the world. You mentioned camps. These in no way are permanent settlements. Could you describe what a refugee camp is like? Well, they are, in fact, and I think it's a sort of a misnomer for Palestinian refugees, and people are always surprised because the uh, Palestinian refugee camps, after almost 60 years, they are really like towns, and they are mostly parts of towns, just an extension of a town. So you're not even sure when you're in the refugee camp or you're in a town. It's, the, you know, the poor, perhaps, and the more crowded areas, the parts of town. But uh, they're not, except uh, in Lebanon, the usual camp that you think of that's surrounded and closed up or with a, you know, gated or fenced or something. So you can pass in and out of the camp throughout the rest of the country, Gaza or West Bank. Gaza, West Bank, and in Jordan and Syria as well. In Jordan and Syria, for instance, the uh, refugees in Jordan are many of them citizens, and in Syria treated like citizens, very well treated in both those countries where they have access to the labor market, they have access to the schools and universities, and so are treated just like the people of the country. Why aren't they treated like people of the country? in other areas? Well, only in Lebanon have they not been, and that, of course, is partly historical, partly demographic, and so on, where there's been the the civil war in which they were were a party to in, in the past. Lebanon has just been one of the countries that has said when there's a solution to the Palestinian-Israeli problem, then the Palestinians will have to leave. It's just a, you know, they will not be allowed to stay there. So they've always been kept somewhat separate, although that has been changing. The government has become a little more flexible about letting them work and improving the living conditions in the camps. What is the school system like that you've set up? It's an extension of whichever school system in the country where the, the refugees are. So we use the local curriculum, the local textbooks, and so on. We hire the teachers, and the teachers are mostly refugees. So it's a, it's a normal school system, uh, you know, from first grade through 12th grade, except for UNRWA only goes up to the, through the ninth grade, and then they go off to secondary school in whichever country they are. Do they have any opportunity to get further education outside their own countries? Yes, quite a lot. Uh, not through us. We used to have a tertiary scholarship pro- program for universities, but with years of austerity, we no longer do that. But there are some countries that are quite good about giving uh, scholarships to Palestine refugees, particularly those in Lebanon who have less opportunities than in the other countries. And most kids go on to do university education and even beyond that. One of the things that's been a, a function of the intifada here was that there aren't, since there aren't any jobs, people finish school and go on to university and finish university and go on to get a master's degree and then go on to get a doctorate. So we have a lot of pretty well-educated people, and uh, many of them without any work, however, when they finish. You mentioned the intifada, and I wonder what this has done to the progression of their education in Gaza. When you compare the students in Gaza, say, to the students in West Bank or Lebanon, is there any difference? There's a very big difference. And it's something we really just acknowledged and discovered, I would say. They're much worse off than in, even in West Bank, although West Bank also, they're, they're not so well off. But we've just done independent testing to try to see what's happening to our students, because especially those in Gaza and to a lesser extent the ones in West Bank have been exposed to this you know, high level of violence over the past five to seven years. They've had some of them years of not being able to sleep because of you know the bulldozers coming in or the bombs falling and so on. So there's been a real psychological damage to them, and there have been also big problems with access to the schools for the teachers and so on, so that people have not had their full program of teaching. And so the, especially in the basic skills, we found that we have to do a lot of remedial work that we were just beginning major programs on to bring the, uh, the standards back up because UNRWA used to be known for its excellence in the schools. Within the schools, is there a large need for social care 
psychology treating students for post-traumatic stress? Well, that's something we started fairly early on in the Intifada. We realized there needed, was a need for what we called psychosocial counseling, community mental health program is what we're calling it now. We started this in West Bank and Gaza. We'd started it for the children particularly, then discovered that it was you know, also a great need for the parents as well, particularly the fathers who were no longer able to support their families. And this was a very big problem for them not to to be in charge and to be taking care of their families. So we have a rather major program that started out as an emergency program, and we've now uh, integrated into our regular programs because we know that it's going to be needed for some years to come. I want to thank Karen Abuzaid, Commissioner General of UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, for being our guest today. We've been discussing humanitarian health problems for Palestinian refugees. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.